Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5bsds9 at gmail.com. back to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9. This is uh, Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing tonight, Matt? Doing pretty well. Yeah, this is the second time we're having to record this episode because I pulled a... I have yet to figure out a character that makes a lot of mistakes. I want to say like I pulled a Garibaldi or a Port of... Rom. 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 I pulled a Rom. Yeah, I pulled a Rom and didn't save the file the last time. So this is a re-recording, but it'll still be enjoyable. Originally, I was going to get drunk in honor of Garibaldi it's 10 a.m. here i didn't think that was probably okay to do but <laughs> yeah yeah I, I did ask you to turn in your uh, editing credentials yeah. and your gun uh when when you, <laughs> you forgot to save this one yeah okay. uh yeah <laughs> all right so today we're covering again for the listeners uh the episode survivors which is episode 11 of babylon 5 season one it aired on may 4th 1994 and we're also covering uh Deep Space Nine Season 2, Episode 5, Cardassians, uh, the second appearance of Plain Simple Garrick, which uh, uh, premiered on the 25th of October, 1993. Matt, do you want to kick us off with the A-plot of uh, Survivors? Sure. So Earth President Luis Santiago, he's scheduled to arrive on Babylon 5 to deliver like a, a new but overdue fighter wing and to announce his uh, signing of the 2250s equivalent of NAFTA in support of alien trade and immigration. But a, uh, a fighter bay explosion could be a failed, ass- either a failed assassination attempt or just an accident from an overworked and underexperienced crew. We aren't quite sure, and that's kind of how the episode progresses. Yeah, yeah, and then in the B-plot, we've got uh, the head of presidential security, a Major Liana Kimmer, is blaming Chief Garibaldi's alcoholism for the death of her father, correctly, and uh, she incorrectly suspects he's responsible for the explosion in the bay. Spoilers. <laughs> so, anyway. Yes, yes. Uh, it turns out Garibaldi actually not a uh, radicalized racist presidential assassin. Who, who could have foreseen that? Yeah, so what, what were your feelings on uh, them exposing Garibaldi's alcoholism? They kind of touched a little bit on it, I think, earlier. They said, you know, he had some issues, but they didn't really go in-depth. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't don't really have like strong feelings about it, positive or negative. I mean, it certainly kind of fits in with especially season one, but I think the whole show, but especially season one's kind of construction of Garibaldi is kind of like a Bruce Willis light from Die Hard, you know, kind of like tropey sort of action hero who's, you know, done some screw ups, but it's also, you know, good at his job, damn it, and he'll get the job done. So you know, it, it fit that vibe. There is a comic that does explore a bit more of uh, Garibaldi's alcoholism and how he first got linked up uh, with Commander Sinclair. It's the second arc of the ongoing Babylon 5 comic from DC. Got collected in a trade paperback called Shadows Past and Present. Uh, that said, I think it's a really bad comic and you should not read it. <laughs> but it it's out there if you really want to read it. If you want to explore more about Garibaldi's alcoholism, make sure you pull those issues. <laughs> one, one thing I did want to make a side note of is I, I did sort of enjoy the video game vibes you get from Garibaldi's investigation. So, you know, he he's implicated in the explosion. He has to turn in his, uh, his comm badge and gun. And uh, so he starts going rogue and fugitive and investigating on his own. He has this, like, successive way successive uh, audiences with Ambassador Malari, Ambassador Shakar, and then uh, your favorite character on the station, Matt Negrath, although you'll be really, uh, really hurt to know this is the last time we see Negrath, although he is mentioned much later in the series. So anyway, there was just felt like a very sort of video game vibe to the way Garibaldi like goes to each of those characters, kind of has simple interactions and gleans an item or fails to glean an item from them. Yeah, it, it was just like a video game plot. It was kind of weird, just the way that yeah, he would go to each character and have, like, just a, yeah, you're right, a very short interaction. There wasn't much going on there. And then he would either get something, like an upgrade almost in a sense, or yeah. he would get some kind of protection from them until he got that, that the final boss battle at the end with uh, people who were actually behind the uh, explosion. Yeah, yeah. Although we do get uh, a a truly great line uh, when Jakar and Garibaldi are having their Sub Rosa meeting and Jakar says something to the effect that the universe runs off a complex interweaving of energy, matter, and enlightened self-interest. And I thought that was a really clever line. I appreciated it. We um, also get this really awkward scene where there's, uh, it, it was, you know, the choreography and the fighting in this is so weird. But it's very '90s. I mean, it's just what most '90s TV was like back then. Like with the with the way they uh, they did like the three on one against Garibaldi at one point. Mm. Yeah, S- yeah. And then Sinclair jumps over the uh, he jumps over a railing and comes at him. And I guess that was supposed to be cool, <laughs> but it's it's so un- unnecessary. He could have just gone down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, it's a it, we're we're back to reckless Daredevil Sinclair yeah. that you were complaining about early in the season. Right, right. He's he's putting himself out there, but yeah, there was there was some weird stuff, it, but it was very '90s, very video game vibes, big time. Um, so who who did you figure out? Who did you figure the assassin was working for when you were watching the episode? I tried to keep up, but I wasn't quite sure who he was. Who the assassin actually was was it? It wasn't the Earth. Uh, I mean, obviously, it wasn't the Earth Alliance, but it wasn't the uh, the Home Front, correct? Or was it Home Front or Home Guard? Excuse me, it, Home Guard. Yeah, well, it, it's now been like two weeks since I watched this episode, so you're making me doubt myself. But I'm pretty sure it's just the Home Guard, which is that uh, racist Earth First organization we first met in the episode, the War Prayer, and it, it's sort of interesting because on the one hand, like they seem to kind of be this sort of like just kind of ineffective 
relatively low class bigots. Like in the episode of The War Prayer, we saw that Ivanova's ex, um, even though he didn't actually seem to be the very smart or very effective, seemed to have like risen up pretty far. And he was also like really excited to get Ivanova and uh, Commander Sinclair as potential recruits when they went undercover. And so you, you got the feeling of a of a kind of maybe a little bit inept and like street level, you know, sort of racist group. Whereas here, they 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 also still have that, although they're they're climbing a little, right? Because they have they compromised the maintenance guy Nolan, who is responsible for the explosion. You know, which what which if I'm recalling right, was an accident. He was like planting a bomb, but the, he didn't realize the work crews were using a certain type of torch, and that torch set off the bomb. That's correct. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, and then. You know, even though the guy doesn't seem very smart or very actually very high up, uh, Cutter, uh, Liana's number two on the presidential security detail. We, we, I think he seems to be the highest ranked person we see so far, and he's he's home guard and he's sort of spearheaded this conspiracy. I don't know. I, I, I will say, like, I, I thought as a sort of example of like you know, kind of early '90s conspiracy TV. This was you know not bad, not a bad example. Like it could stand pretty well with the X-Files, but just as like a political statement, I was kind of annoyed that it's the whole episode it like frames any opposition to this NAFTA in the future as, you know, clearly racist and clearly treasonous. And, you know, for those listeners who don't know, NAFTA was the uh, North American free trade agreement that was uh, spearheaded by a bipartisan coalition in the nineties while Bill Clinton was president. And, you know, there was a lot of, very right um, criticism at the time that it it really uh, hurt labor protections for workers uh, both in the U.S. as well as Canada and Mexico. It also really undermined uh, indigenous land rights in Mexico and it undermined environmental and health regulations. And so the effects of that has been the decimation of American manufacture, at least in part. Uh, NAFTA also really sped up the decline of Mexican agriculture. And so that led to a lot of migration and a lot of instability. And, you know, instability is how you get right wing populists like Trump. It's not a it's not a great recipe. So I don't know. I just I was just generally sort of annoyed with this episode of that. You know, obviously, future future NAFTA is good. And well, if you don't support future NAFTA, you're clearly a Nazi. That was kind of an annoying uh, messaging. Say, this is obviously a, a, an assassination attempt to get Santiago. One thing I did note in this episode is that Santiago, I thought he was like more like Earth first, I guess is what I was gonna say. He was more Earth first than than what I originally thought. Yeah, yeah. That that was the vibe when in the episode of which I believe is Midnight on the Firing Line right. where Santiago is elected. Yeah. Yeah, they, they mention him as being um, Earth first. Uh maybe not that not that extreme and certain not as racist as the home guard people are, but they do he does seem to have this kind of like soft right populist, you know, maybe more Ross Perot than Donald Trump vibe. Right. Um and yeah, it seems like he's sort of betraying that, although there's no like a official acknowledgement of it in this episode that I recall. And I mean, you know, that's not an uncommon thing, right? Like uh, FDR's uh, 1932 campaign for president, he ran on like the gold standard and a fairly, as I recall, like a fairly conventional, like conservative Democrat market friendly. When he got into power, um, you know, the exigencies of the depression 
forced him to, you know, do the new deal and to be, you know, fairly, fairly radical, at least by the standards of American presidents. You'd see that, with, you know, you even saw that with Trump's term where, you know, he ran promising uh, to, you know, be kind of America first president, take care of workers, you know, blah, blah, blah. Not not long on specifics, but he was like, you know, I'll get you a great deal on health care. And then, you know, the major achievement of the Trump presidency was a tax cut, which went very much against like the sort of worker first, America first rhetoric that he ran on. So, you know, it's in that sense, it's maybe just a politician either. He's your typical politician. We we all remember George Bush promising a, a humble foreign policy and a focus on education. And that, you know, that's certainly what we got out of the two terms of the, the George W. Bush administration. <laughs> one thing uh, one thing I noted when I was watching is that at the very end, Ivanova seems somewhat reluctant to uh, stop the countdown. Did you catch on to that or what did you think about that? Yeah, I just thought they like edited the scenes together poorly. I mean, they they were trying to like, you know, goose up the countdown. But they just, it just, well, I just don't think it was synchronized well. So yeah, it came off as like, she was really, uh, really reluctant to stop it. So you don't think like later on Ivanova is going to be like a, uh, a double agent or something, right? Or a, uh, uh, I mean, um, are you asking me, did I think that? Or are you asking me since I've gotten uh, pretty far in the show? Well, do no, I don't, know if she... <laughs> don't, don't spoil it. No, I, just, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think I ever thought Ivanova was uh, at risk of being a double agent i don't i don't think i ever thought that um okay. although you were you were telling me about a, a drop plot that might have been relevant here oh uh yeah uh, i was reading somewhere that originally takashima was supposed to be the sort of the inside person yeah um, and she was the original exo back in the the pilot movie the gathering right yeah. and then she was uh, after uh, her horrible acting she was moved on we 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 claim well we don't know for sure what it was but honestly she was a pretty bad actress they uh i i don't i don't think it was because of her acting i think it was just because availability's changed yeah. uh, i i mean i think the acting in general was weak enough on that it was weak enough on the tv movie that people weren't weren't likely to be fired for it uh, i thought it was oscar worthy bobby come on <laughs> but anyway no, they uh it was uh yeah, but she was originally she was originally supposed to be like the person who was the inside informant on Babylon Five for the uh, Home Guard, which would have been weird. Which was why when I I, I read that and then Ivanova taking her time like stopping this thing at the last second, I was like, hmm, maybe that's I don't know part of it. Yeah, but I mean, she already did sort of have the chance to betray the Earth Force to Home Guard in War Prayer, right? And true, yeah, with Malcolm um, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, one thing I will say to to goose you and to goose our listeners who haven't seen Babylon Five before is there actually is a traitor on the station. It'll be a while before you find out who it is. Oh snap! Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, watch a little. Yeah, closer. it's actually not necessarily the type of thing you can you can watch for. Like I, I won't say anything more than that. Yeah, but it's okay. it's not necessarily the sort of thing they foreshadow. It's kosh. It's got to be kosh. <laughs> well do you want to pivot over to Cardassians? Sure. Uh yeah. So on Cardassians, Bashir and Garrick in the uh Garrick in a second appearance, they uh investigate uh and Cisco adjudicates the case of a young Cardassian boy, Rugal, thought orphaned during the war and raised by Bajoran parents, the Prakas. But revealed by Ducat in his fourth appearance, uh, the thought dead son of a prominent Cardassian politician, Kotan Padar. 
Yeah, yeah. And then in the B plot, uh, after sharing his home with the orphan Cardassian, O'Brien learns he has more in common with the boy than he originally thought. So uh, this is the second appearance of Garrick, Matt. Uh, you got any thoughts on him and Bashir as depiction or developing relationship? Yeah, Garrick is uh, he's he he's he's grooming Bashir. Bashir. I I don't know if <laughs> grooming is the right word. I mean, Bashir's of age. Oh, I mean, wait, granted, wrong, he, wrong word. What yeah. do you call it? <laughs> okay, flirting. So- Flirting, uh, what cruising, you cruising. That's the word I'm looking for. Sorry, I'm not. I'm not up on my lingo. Yeah, you're right. Grooming is like, yeah, that's bad. Okay, <laughs> he's he's cruising him, cruising him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like, there's the one scene where they're in the uh, the runabout and uh, Bashir cuts the power, and you can just see in Garrick's eyes, you know, he's got that Sulu look to him, like, you know, ooh, something's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. Although I guess it, it's kind of interesting that. Uh, it seems like Bashir becomes more of uh, you know most of the subtext is still from Garrick, but Bashir seems to take you know some role in the subtext. Where in past prologue, the the episode from season one that introduced Garrick, you know Bashir just seemed like on the verge of panic the in every time he had to deal with Garrick. Here he seems to start to be getting a little more comfortable, and you know he actually does like take the initiative and in stopping the runabout. Although I don't you know I don't think he necessarily. That thought through the implications of that action. And then it's yeah. also the first time we see that uh, Garrick and Ducat have this like long rivalry from the past. And Ducat denies it at first. It's yeah, like, hostility. Yeah, although, like, yeah, Ducat has that great line that uh, Garrick was an amiable fellow, if ever there was one. Right. We also get the sense that Ducat still has like some people on DS9 reporting back to him. Because, you know, he finds out about Rugal biting Garrick even before Cisco does. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting and I wanted to ask you, I I think you get the sense in this episode that Garrick is more of a player in Cardassian politics than I think he turns out to be. Because in this one he seems to be, you know, pretty active in conspiring to, you know, support the civilian government in the Cardassian Union against like Ducat and the military. And, you know, he seems to be intervening to protect Kotan Padur. And I, yeah, in my, my memory, it's been a few years, but in my memory, like in later episodes, you know, we just find out that uh, Garrick is, you know, in total exile and total disgrace from the Cardassian Union. So in this episode, I kind of got, I didn't quite get those vibes. I was wondering what you thought about that. So when you look at, uh, you know, with Garrick and, and Ducat, I, I wasn't quite sure what their past relationship actually entailed. And I feel like if I went, I think I said this before, but I think if I go back and reread that book, which I still haven't done yet, I I don't know why I'm being so lazy, but A Stitch in Time, I think I started it. I'm curious, like, what role Garrick actually played prior to his time on DS9. You know, was he, has he always been a tailor? Was he a soldier for the Cardassians? No, no, he was a, he was a spy. He's, he was he's a spy. in the Obsidian. He's in the Obsidian Order. We do know that from later stuff, yeah. Okay, so he's in the Obsidian Order, and yeah. we determine, so... What kind of past do they have, and is it enough for Garrick to still have so much political pull at this point? Like, I mean, I feel like if you, you know, become the the lowly tailor at DS Nine, like I don't understand how you were able to pull off some of the things that he kind of is willing to do, where you can stand up to Ducat at this point. Uh, yeah, although also in a sense, I guess it's like he's kind of beyond Ducat's power. Like my my vague sense of that book is like. 
he you know his disgrace happens a few years before the end of the occupation and that's why he's kind of working it at it as a tailor on the station but with ducat gone like you know he can't exert any direct authority over garrick anymore so garrick is potentially free to you know do these conspiracies against ducat as we go further along in the seasons this is explored more i'm sure it's or at least garrick i mean garrick i know garrick is but strangely enough like he only appeared in like 40 episodes i believe of ds9 total yeah, so like on average, maybe like three or four episodes a season or so. Right, which I feel like his character could have been fleshed out more if they had wanted to go in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you kind of wish that DS9 had kind of done more of the Babylon 5 approach where they had, um, well, they 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 have their main cast, but they're not afraid to, they're not afraid to have some of the main cast not be in an episode. So like ambassador Delenn or ambassador Malari might not be in any given episode of Babylon five, but there's still a main focus of plot and story. And it's kind of interesting to imagine a DS nine where a character like Garrick or even a character like Dukat is thought of as being in the main cast, but there's just not an expectation that they need to be worked into every episode. Although I think that's it. You know, usually I I like Star Trek elements even in DS9, but I think that's sort of where the Star Trek elements of DS9 hobble it a little. Is there's you know the implication of the show is oh it's got to be the senior staff are the main characters and you know most of the senior staff have to be in most episodes and they have to have you know lines or small contributions to solving the problem or whatever. Yeah, that is so true of Babylon Five because the ambassadors just kind of I mean they'll they'll appear. They appear sporadically throughout at least this first season. You know, someday some you'll get several episodes where you don't see Kosh. You get several episodes where, you know, you only see Jakar. You don't see. You may not see Delin. I mean, it's it's they they weren't. You're right. They weren't afraid. And uh, or Doctor Franklin. Like you rarely see that dude. Like Hulter, Like what I've noticed, he's shown up maybe I think in three episodes at this point. <laughs> or in what? Yeah, and you were, you were telling me with the original Doctor. Um, I think Johnny Sika was the actor's name, although I'm blanking on the character's name. You were saying there was a little bit of a different plan for him, right? Yeah, from what I read, uh, he and Sinc- he was supposed to almost be like a mentor character to Sinclair. He wasn't just a medical doctor; he was more of a scientist that was like kind of doing experiment type stuff on Babylon Five. Whereas Doctor Franklin, to me, is like legit just doctor handling his people getting hurt. Like, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And well, and Dr. Franklin, in the, both the episodes we've seen and the ones we're going to see, it's kind of interesting because he seems to be the conduit for the most Star Trek type plots, you know, like the episodes that Babylon 5 that could most easily be like Star Trek episodes usually are the ones that heavily feature Dr. Franklin. Going back to Dukat and Garrick, though, I will say that they both did have action figures, so they were considered uh, main characters, at least. I mean, didn't they make like dozens of action figures though? For like, I had an action figure of the fucking Traveler. <laughs> he was important. He's the one that took. No, him. he wasn't. He was in three episodes, all of them. All. <laughs> well, I guess the middle one wasn't that bad, but the the first one and the the last one were oh so bad. For, for DS for DS Nine, uh, they didn't make as many figures though, Bob. So you got to keep that in mind. DS Nine. Oh, they ne- didn't. Ne- yeah, yeah, next next gen got like a whole like got everybody. Uh, DS9 okay. primarily okay. just got your main characters. Well, I guess I should say in the first wave of action figures, <laughs> they, uh, Ducat, yeah, Ducat yeah. was one of the figures they had. And then I think in the second The ones wave, they were trying they to sell to children, not the ones they were trying to sell to collectors. Correct. There you go. Well, I mean, it was all, yeah. 
speaking of which, those things aren't worth anything now. I was talking to my brother about it because uh, we were looking at stuff for eBay. And, you know, we were like, okay, I got a couple of these Star Trek figures. Let's see how much they're worth on eBay. <laughs> those things are worth nothing. I mean, they're wor- they were worth more then than they are now. And that's in package. Mm. You know, we used to go to the comic book store and stuff, and they would be like, you'd have. Yeah, a big fi- wall of Star Trek figures. Yeah, fi- yeah $15, $20, $30, some of the action figures. Like, I remember, like, uh, Lacutus of Borg, he was like 30 bucks. You go online now, you can get Lacutus of Borg for like $5 in package, mint condition. <laughs> so sad. But that, that's just what happened. I mean, this, once again, this is 90s culture. They realized that, you know, people liked action figures, so they produced way too many of them. And you know, they sat on shelves. And they just, yeah. And I mean, despite our childhood enthusiasm for them, I mean, in general, Star Trek is, you know, one of the big media franchises that's the least suited for action figures, you know, in contrast with like Star Wars or, you know, comic superheroes, stuff like that. You said that, but then they made like Babylon 5. They made so many action figures for them, too. They made variations of Kosh, Andalin, uh, variations of Londo. <laughs> like, it was just like so, they were really pumping out crazy amounts of action figures in the 90s yeah yeah all yeah. of the merchandising all yes. of the merchandising yes. if you go if, like if you go down the toy all today that there's not there's nothing like as far as action figures go but there were so many it was just covered uh <laughs> that's why i have like a fascination with them sometimes uh, that's my, my little rant there for, for my little uh, yeah yeah Oh man! Well, did you want to pivot to the uh, the very happy issue of child abuse? Yeah. So, thought, speaking of Rugal, uh, at one point they mentioned something along the lines of Rugal being abused by the Prakas, and it was just kind of implied. You didn't see any actual like physical evidence of it, but it, it was an odd. It was just a, a kind of a heavy topic to bring up in Star Trek, especially in this scenario. And what I, I think, like, the implication is, is that gambler Zolan, who makes the allegation to Bashir, it is probably working for Dukat, right? Like, I think that's the, 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 the episode never brings Zolan back, or, and honestly, after, like, initially, like, casting doubt on the allegation, doesn't really return to the allegation of child abuse itself, but I, that was sort of the impression I got, that. Yeah, this is part of this was part of this allegation was part of Ducat's larger scheme to embarrass Kotan Padur. Right, but don't you feel like the the whole reasoning behind the child abuse though is why like Bashir brought the brought the case up to uh Cisco in the first place? Yeah, yeah, no, and that's what Ducat was trying to set in yeah. motion, I think. Yeah, yeah. And so then but I feel like then when when Cisco goes through with the whole trying to determine what, what's best for the child, if he should go with his uh you know, biological father or with the uh, Prakas, it's never really investigated. We don't really see that. <laughs> like, like, well, it, it seems like it seems like there's some lines, granted it's been two weeks, but it seems like there's some lines early on where Cisco is basically like, yeah, I've found no evidence to support this. And then he just, you know, the, the moral dilemma then sort of shifts to be about like, is Rugal better off uh, on Bajor, he's better, or is he better off with his biological family in the Cardassian Union? And I don't know that that's an interesting question too. Although it's not, I don't think it's explored all that thoroughly either. Like, if Cisco is going to make some sort of you know custody determination, right? You'd think. I mean, granted, this may may not make for the best drama, but it would seem like you, you know, it seemed like it would be incumbent on him to get a better sense of like what sort of social life. Uh, 
Rugal had on Bajor, what was he, how was he likely to live in Cardassia? And the show doesn't really do that. And yeah, Cisco I don't know. Needs, just Cisco needs to get out of clipboard and go down and have a home visit for like, yeah, he, he needs to have several <laughs> home visits. Um, he needs to see like copies of their pay stubs. He needs to make sure that they have you know, running water, all kinds of things. And I don't, I don't feel like he, he went to that. He went to that extreme. No, no, he didn't do that. And I mean, it is sort of an interesting philosophical question. Like, are you better off with your biological family or, you know, is continuity of care and Rugal's stated preference is that should that outweigh the claim of the biological family? I mean, I think that's an interesting um, dilemma. I don't have a strong opinion on it, but I I think my position would tend to be that Rugal should have... uh, stayed on Bajor would tend to be my position. Yeah, th- this, but was, the- this was an interesting question, and I did pose it on uh, one of the Facebook groups as a poll. Um, yeah, several what were the results on that. Yeah, it was almost uh, it's almost fifty fifty between either s- with each family, with him either going to uh, with his biological father Padar or going with uh, the Prakas. So a lot of people like felt that he should still he he shouldn't be with his biological father. There were a lot of comments, though, in the section concerning the uh, concerning him going back with Padar because he's biological, and that the Prakas are kind of uh, not, not the word brainwashing is too strong. I'm trying to think of the right word to say. Um, they were kind well, yeah, because of- there's this interesting tension, right? Like on the one hand, obviously, Rugal's people are responsible for you know great crimes against the Bajorans, and so that is going to factor to some extent into his reception and day-to-day life on Bajor, even if it's, you know, we get the, I think we get the impression like his foster family do love him and accept him, but that's still going to, in some way, you know, the fact that he is Cardassian is in some way going to inflect that. And so I guess the question is like, psychologically is Rugal better off like living in this society that is, um, that's going to continually remind him of the crimes of his people, or is he better off, you know, going into this powerful family in his people where honestly, they're probably going to try to convince him, you know, Cardassia did nothing wrong. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, like there's the, the, like on the moral issue, obviously the Bajoran imperative to not forget what the Cardassians did has a claim, but then, just as like a matter of Rugal psychology, there is an issue of like, well, is there a point though where that remembering Cardassian crimes is going too far and Rugal's internalizing that too much as part of his own identity? Um, and that, that's an interesting question and that the episode raises. Again, I don't, I don't have a strong opinion about it. But There were also some comments too that they should share custody, which I think would never work out between the Cardassian and the Bajoran. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that 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 seems uh, unlikely to be successful. That seems like the the plot for like some really crappy like spinoff uh, sitcom. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, well, uh, any any other thoughts as we come to the end of our uh, social work edition of Deep Space Nine? No, I think we're good. We got it pretty much covered. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you're interested, apparently there is a novel that follows the adventures of Rugal during the Dominion War. I think it's called The Neverending Sacrifice. And it honestly just seems like the just from reading the plot summary on Memory Beta, it seems like the author really, really hated this episode and really thought Rugal should have stayed on Bajor and just wrote a whole novel 
about how Regal should have stayed on Bajor. And uh, it honestly does not does not sound appealing. But uh, it, I think it's the never-ending sacrifice. I'll double-check that in the show notes. But if uh, if you want the further adventures of Rugal, or if your Rugal should have stayed on Bajor, uh, Truther, it sounds like the novel for you, I guess. All right, so let's uh, let's talk about Thirst Watch for a moment. Uh, there's one scene in Babylon 5 in, in this episode where at the very end, you know, Kimmer, we didn't talk. To, we didn't just talk about her too much, but she's the she's the one that blames Garibaldi for the death of her father. Like Bob yeah, said, she never right? comes back. Thankfully, yeah. I think she never comes back. She she blames Garibaldi for the death of her father, and like Bob said earlier, rightfully so. And uh, at the very end of the episode, there's like this tension between the two of them, and I'm just sitting there. And I'm like, like, please. Don't let it happen. Don't let Garibaldi kiss her. Don't let them, don't turn this into like some like relationship thing because she calls him Uncle Michael, which I'm like, yeah, but no, they just hug. Yeah. Thank God they just hug. But it was such a close call because I was thinking that that seems like something like so skeezy that they that Garibaldi just might do, but he didn't cross that line in this episode. So, you know, I'm thankful that didn't happen. Yeah, big, big emotional incest energy. Um, I read uh, the Arthur Miller tragedy, uh, View from the Bridge, uh, right after watch, re-watching this episode, and similar situations, and uh, much better handled. So uh, if, you, if you want to read a great, uh, great mid-20th century play, I'd highly recommend uh, Arthur Miller's View from the Bridge. And Thirst Watch for DS9, I mean, really, it was obvious, it's the, the interactions between Bashir and Garrick. Uh, that's really all I got to say about that. I mean, it's, <laughs> nothing, yeah, really, yeah. nothing that stood out that I need to like really point out, but it, it's, there's, it's totally there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So next, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a shame that that thirst was never actualized on screen. One of, one of the great shames of the Star Trek franchise, but um, as, as we keep going, we've got uh we're going by JMS's watch order for Babylon five. So, that means for us, episode 12 is by any means necessary, which is uh, not uh, one of the best uh, Babylon 5 season one episodes, but it is one of my favorites. Um, so I'm really looking forward to talking about that. And then we've got another Ferengi episode coming up. We're skipping episode six of season two of DS9 and going straight to episode seven, Rules of Acquisition. All right. Well, looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for joining me today, Matt. This has uh, been Bob from uh, Cascadia and Matt from the Southland, and we've uh, this is Babylon Five versus Deep Space Nine. We'll see everybody next week. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at b5vsds9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack b5vsds9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcast. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question on the show. Uh, we plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com.